Good morning. How are you today? Everybody blessed? Would you stand with me, please, once more this morning? How many of you enjoyed that new song that Bernie and Alexander did? I love those guys, and I love it that we have once in a while one of those real moments like that at Victory. Uh, Just, you know, we're just family around here. We want to do it with excellence, but uh, the presence of Jesus is more important than anything else. And I think sometimes, you know, I think I think maybe, I know when I hit a bad sour note once in a while, I go, oh, Lord, help me, and I get my focus on him, you know. So <laughs> it's kind of easy to get in that coasting thing, for me anyway. Uh, but they did a great job. That's the, that's the prayer. That's, that's the whole spirit of what we're saying this morning. Oh, how I need you. Say that with me right now. Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Lord, we just thank you for that together. As we read the scripture this morning found in Mark chapter 10, this is our key text. Read out loud with me, please. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, take what can become so quickly familiar where we can think that, you know, man, I got that. Thank you, Lord, that there are just depths and unsearchable riches of truth that are in your word that we've not even tapped into yet. Thank you that you came to demonstrate a life of thinking of others, considering the needs of others first, not to be served yourself, but to serve. Lord, make us in that image. Make me, Jesus. Take my life and move into my heart in a a new investment of what it means to serve you and to serve your people. Do that, oh God, in this church. Thank you that that is evident here. Jesus, and it's only because of you, who you are. You're great, oh God. Touch us today. And it's, it's with the agreement of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 that I pray today for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Paul prayed and he said, the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling What is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the exceeding greatness of his mighty power to usward who believe according to the working of that mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him far above all principality and power and gave him a name above every name and made him to be the head over the church, the fullness of him, his body which fills all in all. Jesus, we pray in agreement with the Apostle Paul this morning that you enlighten our understanding. Let the eyes of our hearts be opened so that we may know the hope of your calling. Move in this service today, we pray in Jesus' name. Touch hearts, change lives, do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, I can't do it. You have to do it. Do what you do today in Jesus' name. Everybody said, you may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. I'm so excited to be with you today. I just ask you to pray for me for strength. I've got a little bit of a throat sinus situation that I've been battling for a few days. And so I apologize if I head into any, any kind of hacking. I'm trying to avoid that today. Uh, this is number 24 in the series in the Gospel of Mark. It's called The Transfiguration of Jesus Christ. This is a very, very important moment. We're going to look here at 13 verses in Mark chapter 9, and you can stay seated and just read along with me. 
Um, I'm going to go a little old school this morning. Once in a while, I just, because I've been doing my Bible reading, Bible study with technology for the last several years, once in a while, I just kind of like to hearken back to the, all the feel. I'm a very tactile, tactile person and experience. I, when I do my devotional reading in the morning, it's the smell of a fresh, freshly ground, freshly brewed cup of coffee. And it's usually the, the, the fog the last few days over the backyard. And it's, it's the smell. And any of you, am I just a freak? Is that what it is? But I love it. I love It's the smell of that ink on that paper. And, and uh, I just growing up and, and being in the Word, sometimes I've got to just put down the iPad and, you know, being able to slip the, flip the pages and all that. And I've got to go back and be able to hear that. I have to hear that sound and I have to touch it and I see red ink on white paper and I see Jesus' words. Um, not, that there's, not that there's anything mystical about that or anything superstitious, it's just a different kind of experience. And so this morning I'm going to Lowell School, so just listen with me as I read Mark 9, 1 through 13. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now the next 12 verses deal with this very critical moment in Jesus' life. It's a landmark milestone. It's called the transfiguration. So here we go, verse 2 through 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Everybody say a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say. <laughs> I love Peter. You know, you know, sometimes when you don't know what to say, it's just best just maybe just to think about keeping your mouth shut. Oh, but Lord, how about we build three tents here? And for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Yeah, I believe that could best describe it. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Say those last three words with me. But Jesus only. I love that. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They're like scratching their heads going... What's he talking about? So they, they still don't get it, okay? And they ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Verse 13, and this is the last verse. But I tell you that Elijah has come. Another of the Gospels, in another translation says, Elijah has already come. Okay, so this is talking about John the Baptist, obviously, who came in the spirit and the power 
of Elijah. He was the forerunner. Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, as John the Baptist was preparation for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Great principle there. Everybody say preparation. preparation. Always comes before revelation. Now say the whole sentence. Preparation always comes before revelation. So before you see the revealed blessing or provision or answer of God that you're praying for, He will always take you through a season of preparation. Prepare the way of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, is what Isaiah 40 says. So John the Baptist was the preparer. Jesus was the revealer. Literally, He was the revealed presence of God. Okay? So he says, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his absolutely phenomenal and amazing word. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is one of five critical moments in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. These five key moments in the life of Jesus. That's the next point, guys. Five key moments in the life of Jesus. Thank you. Now, I'm already on the next one, so please stay with me. Here we go. These five key moments in the life of Jesus are his birth, his baptism. Read them out loud with me. His transfiguration. And then in one fell swoop, we have his crucifixion and his resurrection because that's in a three-day period, one extended event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally we have his ascension. That's where he is taken up into glory, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the Bible says in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. In the birth of Jesus Christ, we have shepherds who sing and angels who declare the glory of the Lord has come. Glory to God in the highest. And Peace on earth toward men of goodwill. That's what the literal Greek says. The, the, the word of the Lord declares there that this day is born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so we have the declaration of the word of the Lord, the spoken word of God over the birth of Jesus Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, is Christ and Lord. And He has come into the world. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. John 1 says, And the word was made flesh. And he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it says, and of his fullness of his grace have we received, and grace upon grace. Grace of God that's poured out upon us. And so the, the first event is his birth. He comes into the world. He is Messiah. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Thirty years later, the second critical moment in Jesus' life is going to initiate him into his three and a half year ministry. Um, most circumstances you see people prepare three and a half years for a 30-year career. They'll go three and a half, four, four and a half years to school, sometimes five if you're on the extended plan. Uh, you know, go through career orientation or skills training or vocational school or sometimes specialist degrees following that, maybe a couple more years after that. But usually the amount of training and preparation to the actual job is much, much, much less. Jesus flips that thing on, the, on its head. He does 30 years of preparation for a three-and-a-half-year ministry. And I think we see a vast difference in terms of how it touches the world. Everything that he's experienced, his 
knowing the word, his obedience, his active obedience to his parents as a human baby, yet God in the flesh all at the same time. Growing up, the Bible says in Hebrews, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered and he became the author of eternal salvation. That's what the Bible tells us. So he's learning things just like every other normal child does. It's a period of preparation before revelation comes. And John the Baptist comes on the scene fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 40 that prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every mountain shall be brought low, every valley shall be exalted and, and the, the crooked places shall be made plain, Isaiah 40 says. And then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. So prepare before reveal. Preparation comes before revelation. John the Baptist came before Jesus. This is the spirit and the power of Elijah that Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 9. Elijah must first come and restore all things. When you see the closing of the Old Covenant, the last book of the Bible is the book of Malachi, and it talks about the last few words are the word curse. The Old Covenant ends with a curse. But in those preceding words in chapter 4, the last chapter of the last book of the Old Covenant, it talks about God sending a revival and the spirit of Elijah come will come and turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, the hearts of the children back to their fathers. And so that's the fulfillment we see when, when John the Baptist comes. It's the restoring of these things and the preparation for Jesus to be revealed as who he is. And Jesus says that's already happened. John the Baptist is the Elijah. He said, I'm telling you, this is the Elijah who was to come. He's already come and they had their way with him and did with him what they chose to do. Verse 13 says, But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is as written of him. So Jesus, go back, let's uh, sort of rewind for just a couple of moments, and let's look back to that second event in Jesus' life, that second of five critical moments in the baptism where he comes to the Jordan River, and his cousin for the very first time sees Jesus in a way that he's never seen him before. He's grown up knowing that there was something different about him. But I believe it was in that moment that a light comes on and revelation dawns on John the Baptist, the prophet's heart. And he looks at his cousin in a way that he's never seen him. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus steps down into the water. John had just said, You know what? You need to be baptizing me. And Jesus says, No, allow it to be so to fulfill all righteousness. And when Jesus goes down into the water, the Bible says the heavens rumble. It says when he comes up out of the water that the Holy Spirit literally lights on Jesus like a dove. Now some misconstrue this and go away thinking that a literal dove had shown up and there is no bird in that passage. It just says the Holy Spirit came down on him like a dove. And we have folks who... You know, think that, that, that a dove, that, that the Holy Ghost is a bird. And obviously we're seeing a demonstration of the Trinity right here in this one critical moment in Jesus' ministry. At His baptism, God the Father speaks from heaven. God the Son is in the water being baptized to fulfill the righteousness requirements of the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit comes down and lights upon Him. So it's like a shining light. It's something that is brilliant that literally just sits down here on Him like a light or a light that sits on him, and so it comes like a dove, is what the Scripture says. So we have all three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, present there in the baptism. When we move to this third one, this middle one, this critically important one, it happens middle ways in Jesus' ministry. And this is for the purpose of revealing to these disciples that who Jesus claims He is, He truly is. Now this time it's not something coming from the external outside lighting on Him, 
but it's something that is moving from the inside of Jesus that is powerfully, atomically explosive. That's just the best way I know how to describe it. It's like nuclear fission. We've got this explosive kind of demonstration of critical mass. It's, it's just kind of a, uh, an outshining of glittering. It's literally causing the garments that he's wearing to take on a different appearance. There's nothing that MTV and the VMA Awards and the best production with lights and costuming could ever do to give you a glimpse of how powerful this was in the eyes of three three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Jesus' face is radiating. His, glow, his clothes are glowing to the point that they literally describe it that there's no way anybody on earth could bleach them so white. They were blindingly white to demonstrate the power and the purity of the divine that is breaking out from the inside of this more than human, this God-man, Jesus Christ, who is transfigured in front of them. Critical moment, midway, he is demonstrated through power and through signs and wonders. Blind, have, uh, blind eyes have seen, deaf ears have been unstopped, the dead have been raised, the gospel has been preached to the poor. Kingdom of God is advancing. It's, it's, it's a powerful ministry that is emerging and growing. But Jesus has shifted gears here midway in Mark and he started to talk about going to a cross and dying. Alex did an amazing job last week sharing with us Mark chapter 8 where Peter is asked the question. And, and I believe that every one of us in this room have to come to a grips with this at some point in our lives where it ceases to be what is everybody else saying about who Jesus is. Because you can pick up a Time magazine once a year, probably at Easter, maybe at Christmas, and there will be the latest polls and the Pew surveys and various things taken regarding what America or the different people around the world claim who Jesus is, this historical Jesus. By the way, we have more evidence for his existence, historical archaeological evidence for his existence than we do Julius Caesar, but nobody challenges the historical validity of a guy named Julius Caesar. Are you hearing me this morning? And yet there is this, in the midst of all of this challenge and unbelief and all these people in the world, who do they say Jesus is? And this very same thing is what Jesus was presenting to his own disciples, looking at them going, who do they say that I the Son of Man am? And Alex did an amazing job last Sunday sharing that, but it comes down to no longer what is everybody else saying, but who do you say that I am? Because that's the life-changing question. It's that moment where he comes real to you, where he, there's a revelation that dawns on your individual heart. And Peter said... Jesus Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Matthew gives the expanded version of this story. And he says, flesh and blood have not revealed that to you, but my Father which is in heaven has revealed that to you. And he's saying, Peter, upon this rock, this rock of revelation, I will build my church. And before anyone can come into the church, the church is not something that you join, it's something that God joins you to. The church is the called out body of Christ made in the image, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Come on, we are blood washed, we are blood bought. Say amen. amen. And to be a part of that, you have to have had some point in your life where the light bulb comes on and the revelation comes to your heart. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are my Savior. You are my Lord. You are my Messiah. You recognize that. You declare that. You proclaim that. You publicly profess that. That literally is the initiation of you into this thing called the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, whether you join First Church or Victory Church or anything else for that matter is a 
entirely different kind of a situation. But we're talking about being a part of the body of Christ, the universal church. And it's not red or yellow, black or white. It's not Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Pentecostal. It's all of those things. It's, it's all about those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. He who is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Can I have an amen? amen. And so midway in between this, we've got disciples that are seeing Jesus in a way they've never seen Him before. And it was terrifying. Peter doesn't have words to describe it. He was terrified and he's just, just rattling. He's just got his jaw moving and he's trying to go, what can we do here? He didn't know what to say. He was terrified, the Bible says. Now, we're midway. We, we, we haven't yet, these disciples haven't yet experienced the crucifixion, the darkest moment of their history. They haven't experienced the resurrection, the greatest moment of their history. They have yet to experience the ascension. And then what follows the ascension is the outpouring 10 days later of the Holy Ghost upon the church to send them into all the world and make disciples for Jesus Christ, for the kingdom of God. And so they're, they're living in between the now and not yet. They haven't yet experienced what we can look back on and see historically. They are still in the moment. So we see this situation where Jesus calls the disciples. And I want to make sure that you know this is one big connected flow to keep us in context with what Alex preached last Sunday. It has everything to do with the cross that Jesus is headed toward. And they couldn't accept it. They couldn't hear it. It has to be kind of embarrassing. And I'm so thankful that, that God lets Peter's story be in the Bible because it gives me so much hope. Because if God can use somebody like Peter, impetuous, get your size 13 foot in your mouth before you think. Peter, you know, open mouth, insert shoe, insert, insert fisherman's sandal. Insert, make a fool out of yourself, Peter. How many times do we see him do it? Thank God that the, the, the writers of the gospel give us a chance to see this because I'm thank, so thankful that I have a chance. Because in one second, Jesus is praising him and going, Oh, this is amazing. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And the very next second, Jesus starts talking about going to the cross and dying. And Peter says, Not so, Lord. And he is literally rebuking. How is it? How is it? How does this happen? It happens in my life. It happens in your life. How does it happen that we get a little bit of spiritual knowledge and we think we can challenge Jesus on what the next step is going to be? How do I do that? I, I, I can get a little bit overcome, a little bit drunk with and giddy with the fact that he just said, hey, good job. You're at the top of the class. You're, 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 you're leading the pack right now. And it's in that moment where I think I can succumb to, I won't be critical of Peter, I'll just talk about me. I can succumb to a little bit of spiritual pride because knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. And there's a difference between the two. And I can, I can start to think that I know a whole lot more than I really do. And that's when I sort of get ahead of myself and I start saying, now Jesus, let me tell you, this is the next thing you need to do. And Peter starts doing that. And Jesus looks at the same one that he said, Great job, flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And he looks at the same dude and he says, Get behind me, Satan, Satan, adversary. You talk about losing your head of the class glow, put on dunce cap, go to corner. This is the experience that Peter has in that moment. And Jesus has to unpack what he's talking about, about going to the cross and suffering and dying and laying down his own soul 
life. Alex did an amazing job last week talking about how until we let go of what we desire, that we can't fully embrace the life and the glory of God that He desires for us. It's greater. It cannot be compared. Now unto Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, or that we can ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us. And that's the work of Christ. And it's the work of the cross to bring to death what I think I want for myself. My soul is made up of three things. I didn't share this in the last service, but I want to get it now. Everybody say, my mind, my will, and my emotions. My mind, my will, and my emotions. And I want you to grab this this morning. My mind is what I think. My will is what I want. My emotions are what I feel. And until I can lose my soul for His, until I'm willing to lay down and let all of that die, what I want, what I think, what I feel, my mind, what I think, my will, what I want, my emotions, what I feel. Until I can lose that for His sake, I cannot take up His mind. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His will has been revealed and poured out that's greater than what I could ever ask or imagine. And certainly His emotion, His joy, His peace, His love that He pours out for me is greater than anything that I could ever describe or imagine. Come on, somebody say amen. When I lay that down, then I can take up something greater. When I lay down my suke, my soul life, we get the English word psychology. Suke is the Greek word. He says, then it's when we take up zoe, the zoe life of God, the God kind of life. So that's connecting this to what Alex preached last week because the next point says, keep this in context. And we want to keep this exactly right where we are in the fact that Jesus is still talking to these guys about having to embrace the cross, having to die to our own carnal desires, having to die to self to, so that we are prepared. We, this is the preparation of dying to self so that God can reveal. Revelation comes and He begins to pour out the fullness of the life of God, the God kind of life. Now, next point, the promise of the inaugurated kingdom is right here in verse 1. He's saying to these guys, there's some of you that are standing here that you're not going to die. You're not going to taste death until you're going to see the kingdom of God come after it has already come in its power. And so I, this is enough for me right here to undo some of the nonsense that you see on Christian television regarding only the kingdom being only a literal 1,000 years out there in the future. The kingdom of God is the reign of God through all of eternity. Okay. Now, I'm not undoing or doing away with a future period, but I'm telling you, we do not as the church need to only think in terms of one of these days because if we do, we never do labor to advance the kingdom of God. Since this moment in history that we're reading about right now, the kingdom of God has been here in power. We are in between the now and the not yet. It has gradually grown more throughout every generation, more and more people coming to Christ, the, the, the body of Christ enlarging and growing, the kingdom of God being advanced, the gospel being preached. There are more people alive on the planet today that profess Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord than ever throughout history combined could hold together all of those people through the 20 centuries who came to know Christ. That's how much revival we're having on the planet right now around the world. The gospel is spreading. It's having impact. It's changing governments. It's altering cultures. It's transforming people. It's changing lives. It's putting marriages back together. It's healing brokenness. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the kingdom of God is His Lordship. We are preaching in this place. Not just Jesus saves, 
Too many times in American Southern Churchianity, every Sunday, it is always hammering people. You're no good, you're no good, you're going to split hell wide open. You're nothing but a low down, no good sinner. And they just preach Jesus as Savior to a room full of people that probably 90% of them actually already are saved. 24 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called Savior. 767 times he's called Lord. And most of the churches in this city do not think for one second that I'm thinking right now that I am any better than a pastor or a preacher because of what I'm about to tell you. But this is just an observation. Far too many times we keep preaching Savior to people that are already saved when we need to be preaching Lord to these people that are sitting here that he's Lord of your life. He's the boss. He's calling the shots. We have majored on the minors and we've minored on the majors. He is Savior. Thank God He's Savior. But what does the Bible emphasize? 24 times it calls Him Savior. 767 times it calls Him Lord. He is the Lord. He is the boss. He is calling the shots in our lives. And this is the one who took these three guys up on a mountain and changed, transformed, transfigured in front of them and said, there are going to be some of you boys that are not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God and after it's come in power, and I believe it began in that moment, Lordship of Christ is established. Now look at this. We've got three disciples. Three disciples head to the mountaintop, and they've got a life group going. <coughs> Can you imagine the other nine? We've got Thaddeus and Bartholomew and Matthew. We've got Judas. We've got all these other disciples that are always saying, why is it every time Jesus heads somewhere, it's always Pete, Jim, and John. Pete, Jim, and John. Every time we turn around, it's Pete, Jim, and John. Why can't I go? Let me just remind you that the real ministry of Jesus Christ didn't take place in the crowds of 20,000. But the real ministry that shook the world and continues to shake the world was an investment of one God-man into the lives of 12 men around a campfire in a little small group we might call a life group. Maybe from your past you might call it a Sunday school class. Somebody asked me recently, said, why don't you guys have Sunday school? I really miss that. And I said, well, for one thing, it's just a functional issue for us because we don't have facilities here. And because we deliberately do things from a little bit different philosophy of ministry, we're trying to do it in small groups. Because if you still do a Sunday school, it makes the campus of the church be centralized to everything. And we're really trying to decentralize the message of the gospel. That it's not about what goes on down at the building because the building is not the church. We are the church. And, and let me just shock a couple of you. This is one of the things that our Church of Christ friends really have it, they've got it right. Every one of their signs will say the Church of Christ meets here because Wherever the building is, the building is not the church. The building is a living group of people, an organism, not an organization. But the church is on the march. This is the huddle we're calling for the game so that we can run some plays. Uh, unlike Arkansas was able to do against Alabama yesterday. It was a barbecue. Somebody needed some holy huddle going on, some, some anointment, <laughs> some anointing. <laughs> And so this is our huddle where we're getting together and we're calling the plays and we're going we're gonna to shout the amen and, and all together up in a circle and, and do our one, two, three. Jesus, in a moment, will head out into the football game of life where we're going to run the ball against an opposition and do spiritual warfare and come up against things that are trying to, to be obstacles in our lives. And, and that's because we are the church. We're, this is not the church. We are the church. I'm looking at the church. The church is people. Come on, somebody say Amen. 
And, and, and so we've chosen to do it a little bit differently in a non-traditional kind of way so that we can decentralize it and we can see that the kingdom of God can be advanced and invested in the lives of people in homes where it's a little more comfortable and you have an opportunity to sit down not with you know, 200 people or so. It's not a crowd of 20,000 with Jesus breaking bread and fish and chips day. And we love our celebration services. We love the times where we can gather and lift our hands and we can shout in jubilation. We can celebrate. But there's something to be said for those moments too where there's nothing greater than just being with a group of a few, a handful, where I have an opportunity to say, I'm struggling in this area of my life. Will you pray for me? Will you pray for me and my wife in our marriage? We're, we're in a transitional season in our lives and we need somebody to walk alongside us. You can't do that, fellowshipping the back of somebody's head. No matter how great the praise and worship is, how loud, no matter how hard we shout, no matter how high we jump, jubilation is wonderful. But sometimes you need a moment where you can just let all that be quiet and you can share your hearts. And those are the times when Jesus built into the lives of men who turned the world upside down. It was around the campfire. It was, it was Jesus telling jokes. Some of you probably are too religious to think about that. I believe Jesus had the most incredible sense of humor. And if you don't think, you ought to be up here with me looking at you. He's got a sense of humor. Just the fact that I'm sitting up here means he's got a sense of humor. Are you hearing me this morning? I believe Jesus is about showing us real life and he's about even having some fun along the way. It's not about being sad and, and, and just you know completely looking like you've been baptized in prune juice and sucking on a persimmon, you know, just spiritual. Uh, just need to have some joy, you know. And, and I believe that when we can do that is when we just kind of let our hair down and we're real. And Jesus is doing this not even with the group of 12. He has kind of a small little group of, a, of three, like an accountability group. He always takes these guys with him. Every time he has to deal with death, these guys go with him. These three marched into the house of Jairus' daughter when Jesus put everybody else out, including the family, except for the mom and dad. Pete, Jim, and John went with him in there to deal with death. Another instance where he's dealing with death, Pete, Jim, and John go in. Jesus is about to experience death himself, and he takes these three, Pete, Jim, and John, into the Garden of Gethsemane with him, and he says, can you tarry with me for one hour? Pray with me. Pray for me. Pray with me. Stand with me. So these three knew Jesus in an intimate kind of way. And let me just say this. I believe that everybody here should know Jesus in the crowd and see the demonstration of His power and His signs and wonders and the jubilation and the celebration. I believe Jesus should be known by everybody in this room in a small group of 10, 12, 15 people where you're breaking bread together and you're enjoying life and you're sharing your hearts. I believe that Jesus should be known by everybody in this room in a group of just two or three where you really truly let your heart be completely revealed and you go, guys, I'm, I'm struggling in this area. I have a a behavior, I have a sin in my life that I need you to stand with me. And everybody in this room needs somebody to be that close to them that loves them enough. Come on, somebody. Now, this, this is a mountaintop life group. This, this is an amazing experience. And I, I want to move through this as quickly as possible. He was transfigured in front of them. The next, the next slide says he was transfigured. You'll see the Greek word right there metamorphophe. He was transfigured. This is the English characters here, metamorpho. How many of you remember ninth grade life science where you learned the process where a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly? What is that, that process called? Metamorphosis. Here's the, the, the root. The Greek word is metamorpho. So it's this idea of being transformed. The Apostle Paul uses this concept 
uh, in, in Romans 12 too. Be not conformed to this world, the fashion of the world from the outside, but be transformed, that is from the inside out. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This very thing happened in front of the eyesight of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Jesus is transfigured. He is transformed. It is it's an outshining. It's a, it's a cataclysmic, terrifying kind of an event where light breaks forth out of Jesus in His countenance. There's lights exploding from the pores of His skin and His clothes are glistening and glittering and they're so white that the Bible says no man on earth could bleach them that white. It's a blinding kind of white. It's an experience that marked the minds of these three that this Jesus whom they had been walking with is everything that He claims to be. This very midpoint because in Mark now, we're going to see a shift. Everything is going to begin talking about heading to Jerusalem, heading to the cross, laying down his life as a ransom for many. Is this where we really begin to kick in and see this thing come together about Jesus not coming to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. So he's transformed in front of them. And I want you to see this very quickly. I'm going to go very quickly. We've got, everybody say, three disciples. Two witnesses, one Lord. See, it goes three, two, one. You've got three disciples, Peter, James, and John. You've got two witnesses. The two witnesses back here are Moses and Elijah. Now, this is not a coincidence. This is, this is not just, oh, this just sort of happened to be. Moses and Elijah are the two primary leaders of the Old Covenant. Moses is the federal head of the Old Covenant. He brought us and gave us the law. Elijah is considered to be the primary prophet among all of the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, we could go on and list various ones. But these two men sum up this idea of everything in the Old Testament that has been looking forward to the coming of the Mashiach. The law in Moses, the prophets in Elijah. Every righteous requirement, every demand of the holiness of God everything of God's justice, everything of the wrath and the penalty of God and the judgment of God that's listed in the law is now going to be poured out upon this one that has just been transformed before these three men, Peter, James, and John. Every Old Testament prophecy uttered by Elijah inspired in Isaiah that he would grow up as a root out of dry ground and a tender plant that his... He was one that we would not desire. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. 700 years before the crucifixion would take place, Isaiah saw Jesus hanging on a cross. His visage so marred that he didn't even have the likeness of men. Pardon my grossness, but it was literally hamburger meat hanging on a cross, having been beaten and and bruised and wounded for our transgressions. By His stripes we are healed. And every, every prophetic... Come on and give Him praise. Jesus, we praise You. We love You. Every prophetic utterance given by every major and minor prophet is all summed up in standing there in the witness of Elijah. Every legal requirement of the law of God is summed up in standing there in the witness of Moses. And these two have come and they're talking with this one who has been transformed in the presence of Peter and James and John, the law and the prophets, witnessing. The two in Scripture always speaks of witness 
Out of the mouth of two witnesses, let every word be established. Anyone in the Old Covenant who was ever put to death because of a crime had to be done so at the mouth of two witnesses. It couldn't just be one man's word against another, one against one, but it had to be two witnesses. You find it in Deuteronomy, you find it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Out of the mouth of two witnesses, let every word be established. We have two witnesses in the Word and the Spirit. We have two witnesses in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, all of which point to the centrality of this one man standing right in the middle of his ministry right now who's being transfigured. Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord, Mashiach, Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man. This one who has been transfigured, transformed, he's the one who is left out of all of this out of every experience that we could all come away with on any kind of a mountaintop. I love it. And this is, this is so great. Peter says, what in verse 6, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. How many of you know sometimes if you don't know what to say, it's just best to keep your mouth shut? Sometimes it's good to clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God. Other times it's be still before the Lord. Be still and know that I'm God. Be silent before the Lord, O all flesh. Just await in His presence. Let the peace, the quietness of God, let His everlasting arms engulf us. Let the awareness of what He's doing, what He's saying to us, He is being transformed in our understanding. We're seeing His glory in a way that we've never seen before. There are no words, no human words, no expression that can describe it. And sometimes the greatest praise we can give is just a silent mouth and an open eye in awe and wonder. In complete submission. Peter sort of gets himself ahead of himself and he says, how about I build three tents and let's just hang out here for a while. Bless his heart. Didn't have a clue about what's going on. And you know what? You wouldn't have either. I wouldn't have either. He was overcome. He was overwhelmed. So we've got three disciples and two witnesses and we've got one Lord. I love this and I'm closing. Verse 8, we've just heard the words of God. The words of God are the last thing that you hear here. And he says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In verse 8, And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. No matter how you can describe your experience, no matter whether you run and shout or whether you weep and bow, whether you lie down and fall prostrate before the Lord, however you experience the presence of God when it's all said and done, all, after all that's gone, all you need is Jesus only. All you need is Jesus only. You don't need the, the, the as wonderful as theology is from the law and from the prophets and all of that. Everything that's left, it all has to be, when they turned around and looked, they saw nothing left but Jesus only. And that's where I believe some of you in this room are this morning. It's the question in your own heart. Like last week, whom are men saying that I am? One of the prophets. But it comes down to who do you say that Jesus is? And, and, and I believe that Jesus has the ability to call us all aside to a mountaintop experience at some point or another in each of our lives. And some of you may think, well, you know, we just sort of were standing behind the door when that got passed out because we're here in the flatland of the delta. You know, if you're going to go to the mountaintop, you're going to have to drive a ways. This is not actually... You know, geographical. God can, God can take you to a mountaintop in your bedroom on your knees. He can take you to a mountaintop in the doctor's office when you've just gotten news 
that nobody can explain. He can take you to a mountaintop praying with your spouse and your mate and seeing God move and restore and, and repair brokenness and bring healing. He can take you, come on somebody, help me this morning. He can take you to a mountaintop in all kinds of ways. But you know what? He doesn't ever take any of us to the mountaintop for us to live on that mountaintop experience forever. They have to come down off of the mountaintop. And this is next week's message. They're on the mountaintop one moment and they go right down into a demon-possessed valley. And I think that's why God gives us mountaintop experiences where He infuses us with His power and the anointing of His Holy Spirit and with undeniable, verifiable experiences that are very real that we can say, I know I met God in that moment because I'm going to need the confidence when I have faced those demons in that valley. And when I get down there with him, I won't have all that glow fuzz and all those great feelings and no glitter floating around in the atmosphere. It'll just be Jesus only. Amen. Some of you this morning have been through mountaintop experiences. We, we took the staff and part of our worship team and some of our lead team to Catalyst and we had two days of just concentrated awesome preaching and teaching by great men and women of God. And mountaintop music experiences where the anointing and the manifest presence of God filled the place and and I shouted and I laughed and I wept and I cried and I got on my face and I knelt uh, among 12,000 other leaders in the Gwinnett Center there in Atlanta. And it was just, man, it's just, you're, you're just, uh, just absorbed in that moment and you just think, man, I just don't want to leave. And then, you know, you come back to it and you go, wait a minute, i got a family back home. And, and sometimes in those moments you go, Lord, I just want to stay. I, I can know what Peter felt. I can know in those moments when everything is so right with the world. You don't have to deal with the complaint department and, and people that are upset and circumstances. And you just go, Lord, let me stay here just a little while. How many know what I'm talking about? And Jesus says, no, boys, come on, we got to go. We got to go down. We got an assignment. This was to prepare you for what's about to be revealed down here. Everybody say preparation, revelation. Say it again, preparation, revelation. And I believe every one of them continues to build on the previous. Jesus only sums it all up. Your mountaintops prepare you for your demon-filled valleys. Jesus says this simply, and we're closing this morning. Have you got anything out of this? They were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what he had seen, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Can't imagine. I mean, you're thinking it's really here. The culmination of thousands of years of prophecy and every inkling about it in the law is being fulfilled in this guy and now all of a sudden he's talking about dying? I, I, don't, I don't think I would think any differently than Peter did. I would be probably going, not so, Lord. Because you're experiencing the fulfillment of... of absolutely indescribable joy that no human experience can fulfill. It cannot give it to you. There's no food that tastes good enough. There is no alcohol or drug. There is, there is no experience that we could describe that gives to you that presence of God and, and understanding the peace of the Lord over your life when He is transformed in you and He has revealed to you who He is. I just want to say to you this morning, I'd like you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me, please, as the lights go down.